I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theatre Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theater writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Uphoff-Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theatre Company. And this is Theatre Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theatre from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theater in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 51 of Theater Forward. So this episode, we're going to talk about some thoughts that have been inspired by a recent article on the HowlRound website. The article was Identity Conscious Casting, Moving Beyond Colorblind and Color Conscious Casting by Lavina Jadwani and Victor Vasquez. And um, I'll just I'll, I'll just start by saying, you know, this article caught my eye um, and I wound up sending it around to everybody on our staff and we had some really good conversations about it. Um, and you know, we'll we can put the link to the article in our in our show notes uh, for those who'd like to pause this podcast and go read the article first. But um, you know, Julie, do you think you'd be able to kind of summarize the the main point? You don't have to go into all the sub points of this article, but um, what what they were talking? Yeah, about. I, I'll I'll do main point, and you can uh, you know jump in. But uh, these are two um, from the perspective of casting directors looking at what people are bringing into the room. And we have, we acknowledge, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, that we have gone from colorblind, recognizing that it's none of the color is blind to color conscious. And then what are people showing up in rehearsals and in a rehearsal room as identity? And what needs to be done in the room to recognize people's how people are defining themselves. Great, thank you. And I, and I can even provide a little more context, um, in, at least just in terms of how I approach the article, because I'm of course reading it as a director and I'm a director, I'm going on 30 years of working as a director now, which makes me feel terribly old. Um, and really seeing the evolution of how we talk about inclusive casting equitable casting over the course of my career. So, you know, when I was coming out of college and moved to New York and started working as a freelance director in the 1990s, colorblind was the term that you used if you were trying to make theater more inclusive. That was the the term of the of the day. And it was really in the um in the 2000s that the field started to say hey, when you use the word colorblind, you are negating everything that I bring of myself as a human to the table. And, and of course, once that conversation began, you know, I, I felt as a, as a white woman working in the field, really stupid. Like, of course that term doesn't make any sense. Um, it was an, a term I was medicine as soon as my eyes were open to the, the fact that there was a much better term. And that's when we all started using the term color conscious to make specific choices about what it means to cast people um, of, of differing backgrounds, differing life experiences into different roles. And so um, I had a similar light bulb moment when I read this HowlRound article and they were saying, it's it's time to, to get rid of the term color conscious and use identity conscious because 
it's describing what we're already doing, which is that we aren't just thinking about somebody's race or their skin color when we are making casting decisions. That's not the way we work. Those aren't the conversations that we're having when we make our hiring decisions or decide on what plays we're going to do. We are thinking about all different aspects of what the humans we work with bring to the table. And so, um, you know, we can get into some of the other things that this article proposes, but the, for me, the biggest takeaway was a language change that is going to more accurately reflect what we're what we're doing, and 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 that excited me because I saw that as a really positive development. Well, and it's you know what I think I agreed, um, and what came through in the article and is exciting to me is it further opens up our possibilities. I mean, the article's clearly a pro in the conversation in the article between the two folks there, you know, they're saying, look, there's going to be times when maybe race is not the most important issue. We may choose to be in a particular play emphasizing gender or, or body status or um, uh, sexual orientation. It's not that you would in that situation, quote unquote, erase race, but your casting choices in terms of intersectionality might be thinking about other things as well. And so, as is true with every text, it's possible to be produced in many, many different ways. You know, you can have uh, a production like the, you know, Kenny uh, Leon Much Do About Nothing at Public Theater, which is an all-Black cast, which is terrific, and it's fantastic. You can have a Much Do About Nothing in another situation, which may choose to highlight gender in a way in which race may or may not play as important a role in the casting. It depends. And so to sort of embrace all of the different things that make us who we are and to take everything off of this binary model is, is just, I think the word that's used in the article itself is liberation. And I think that's exactly right. It does become um, an issue. I don't know how that works necessarily. Let me say that. I think that in the way you've described it, absolutely. I think that once you get into a rehearsal room and somebody says, this is how, these are my pronouns, this is how I define myself, then, then we go through the world in a, in a different way and we go through rehearsals um, recognizing that. I found it interesting in this article that these were casting directors. And how do, how do you have someone define themselves that isn't readily apparent. And what does that look like? Um, we can't ask people, um, uh, you know, who, who are you attracted to? What sex is that? You can't, you know, there's things that you can't ask. So how does it work? How do we, I, I'm all for the, um, the, the recognizing everything that someone brings into a room, but how, how do you get those people in the room without asking potentially invasive questions? Or illegal questions. Or illegal questions. And, and can I say too, Jen, you said, you know, many years ago when you were a director, I will say many years ago when I started as an actor and got a degree in it, it's interesting that um, colleges at the time, and I'm not 110 years old, this is a generation ago, um, the idea of a, um, a degree in performance was to cut you down into, into you know, the nothing that could then be built that would be a, a vessel for all the things that would come your way and all the roles, that, that there was this push against bringing yourself into the room. 
You were you were the um, the neutral the neutral body that could inhabit anything that was asked of you by the director. And so, what a actually wonderful and I agree, Mike, liberating, freeing. We can bring who we are in a room. That's absolutely how it should have always been. But it's interesting this this um, this change, the the trajectory we are on. Yeah. Well, and 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 it's got to still be, I think. Um, and this is let, let me back up. I mean, part of intersectionality to me reflects the idea that all of us are many possible things, and that changes and evolves all the time in ways that theater has always recognized. And I wouldn't want, I would not want to lose entirely, Julie, to your point about you know being able to inhabit anything. The idea that theater and the roles that an actor plays should be in some ways transformative. You don't need to be a Russian noble to be an awesome um, actor in a Chekhov play. You know, so you are going to go through transformations and where the rubber really hits the road and where it gets hard and it will change over time is where your identity sort of matches up or doesn't with the particular things you're being asked to assume in a room. You know, so, for example, Carmen Aguirre, who's a, you know, a Chilean um, director and playwright says, I don't want in the future to always be in a situation where every Latinx character in my play has to be played by a Latinx actor. That may be where we are right now. It may be where we should be right now, where actors of color are still completely disproportionately underrepresented in the room and where, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why putting white people in those roles and having them tell those stories doesn't make sense. On the other hand, one of the great theater experiences of my life was watching Patti Lapone play Evita. And, and nobody's going to take that away from me and I'm not going to let them. She was Frickin' fantastic. Um, and and yes, are there things because of that that she missed? You bet. You bet. Can't help but have missed certain things, just as the people writing that show who were white obviously would have missed certain things about who that character was. But there are other things that maybe Patti Lapone, as a, you know, a, a very strong feminist her whole life, was able to bring to that role that maybe somebody else wouldn't have. That to me is what intersectionality is about. And it's conversations in the room. One of the one of the sort of themes behind the theme in this article and in so much of the last year is rooms need to be more democratic. Conversations need to be more dialogic. And it's going to be to your point, Julie, about how are we going to talk about this stuff? A lot of that's going to have to get negotiated in the room rather than beforehand through casting. Maybe that's naive on my part. I mean, I don't know what the director here would think of that, but that's my sort of sort of high in the sky view of what the world is that we should be moving toward. Well, I, you know, I have a couple thoughts on, on on what you were both just saying, and you know, really the the thing that keeps going through my head is, um, you know, I'm looking at this Zoom screen uh, that that for this particular conversation, it's your your typical theater forward team, and and we are all white, um, and and having um, uh, our own take on these issues, which represents only one small slice. Uh, the kinds of perspectives on that. And I, I think for this particular context, it's okay because we're talking about how are, how are these conversations and these ideas influencing the decisions we make as the two leaders of a small regional theater, as a critic and dramaturg. And, you know, we need to do this work as much as anybody, maybe more so <laughs> than than anybody. Um, you know, as long as we're we're really acknowledging that this is 
our sort of slice of, of the perspective on these topics. But, um, you know, to, to your point, well, really to both of your points, it's, it is this remarkable um, balancing act that I think will continually evolve. And, you know, there'll be times when you fall off the tightrope, it's inevitable because we are, we're trying to do two very um, oppositional things at the same time. One is to acknowledge that there are things you can only know when they are your learned experience and that we need to value those things that any human being knows from their own lived experience and how that can make a piece of theater or a story being told or a character being embodied more truthful, more powerful, um, more authentic. And on the other hand, the thing we are balancing that with is that theater is, to use your words, an act of transformation. And it is about putting yourself into another person's shoes, into another experience and recognizing, you know, that there is a shared humanity and your job as an actor or as a director, as a designer is to bring experiences that may not be your own beautifully to life. Right. So though it, it, you know, if you look at those as two just distinct goals, it seems awfully hard <laughs> to honor both of them at the same time. Those, you know, logically they don't seem to, to interact, but I think if you look at it, the way I approach it, you know, play by play as a director to, you know, sort of to your earlier comment, Mike, is that you look at what is this specific story? Um, what is, what is our take on the specific story? What is core and essential to, to what we are trying to tell in this particular case? Um, and how can casting support that? And where is it less relevant? You know, um, I've made my career casting, you know, gay people in straight roles and straight people in gay roles and, and, you know, the, the sort of, not to say pie in the sky, but that, you know, optimistic rainbow love is love and anybody can play love idea. And I think in some plays that's still true. And I think in other plays that might be specifically about the queer experience, um, that, that that's not well served by having somebody, um, who's straight play a gay role. And if, if that's the, if that is the meat of the story, the lived experience of being queer in a predominantly straight world, then that's maybe not what we should do anymore. But if it is, um, if that's not what the play is about, if that's not the predominant story, then maybe we are back into the world of who is the best, um, best is the wrong word. Who, you know, who, who's an actor who can really tell the story, tell it truthfully and with respect. I, you know, these are things we wrestle with all the time. Is that what that howl round I, and and the the Howround article and I encourage listeners to read it that went on a whole bunch of different paths. Um, one of them was that the casting director or what they were calling casting designer should be at, at the very beginning of the process should be hired at the very beginning of the process, knowing what the de other designers are thinking. Um, to to your point, Jen, if you are interested, you're going to do. Well, you know, well, you're going to do a play about gay people. You would prefer that those actors be gay. We can't, if somebody's just coming in for a general audition, 
ask. I mean, Mike, you're in another life a lawyer. I don't know if, I really don't think you can. Do you need then that casting designer? Is that their job to hunt that down? Is that, is that what they are advocating? Well, you know, one of the ways, and you're right, I mean, you can't ask flat out questions, but the whole point of this article to me and of this movement toward intersectionality is to make our conversations more nuanced. You most certainly can have a conversation with a prospective uh, actor for a role about their understanding of who that character is. And, and it doesn't mean that the person who is gay is necessarily going to have a more nuanced answer. But if you have a good in-depth conversation and the person is giving you something that reflects that, then it's more likely to my mind, based on what Jen was saying about lived experience and how that informs who you are, that that is going to, that is going to influence your casting decision in the same way that the casting designer and or director, if she or he is gay, he or she or they is gay, uh, is, is going to perhaps have a different, a different take on this. So there's all these pieces of it. And what I found sort of liberating about this article is it didn't require us to be 100% perfect because you can't be. You can't possibly, unless every single person is only going to ever play themselves, align in every single way with any particular character who's played. The important thing is to have the conversation and some things are going to be more obvious than others. When that college tried to do a production of of the mountaintop by Katori Hall with a white person playing Martin Luther King. That was just ridiculous. Um, you know, right now in the world we live for a white actor to play in an August Wilson play in one of those great black roles is ridiculous. So where will we be a hundred years from now? I have no idea, but you know, but those are things that are real obvious. There may be other things in terms of a person's lived experience to take an August Wilson play where they haven't had the class-based experience that these characters have had. They haven't gone through the discrimination on the level of gender that these characters have. They certainly haven't lived in the Hill District in Pittsburgh. So there are things they're going to be missing, but, the, but, but you know, are the things they bring enough to overcome that? And that's always the sort of really wonderful, to me, I wanna think of this as a positive opportunity for conversations about who we are, where when we don't understand something, we can get better and learn about what we don't know and then move forward from, from there. And I know I'm talking very abstractly. That's why I tried to give some specific examples. It's a conversation that's abstract because it has to be case by case by case. And what might work today maybe won't work tomorrow or what doesn't work today might be great you know, 20 years from now, depending on where we are as, as a society and the kinds of things that, that we've learned about each other. I think it does change then. It changes how we audition people. It changes those first couple days of rehearsal. And, and I'm not saying that's bad. I mean, the, we are being asked then to have, have more conversations Mm -hmm. and, and, get to know people who are in front of us, you know, doing a two minute monologue a little bit better. I You've mean, that's me. As a dramaturg, I want table work to be three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes me think, Mike, about a shared experience that I had when you were the dramaturg for our production of The Amateurs that we never got to open last uh, spring when COVID struck. Um, but, you know, we had cast 
uh, Terry Bell, a phenomenal uh, young black actor uh, in the role of the physic or, or the, the doctor in this play that's set in, in a medieval era. And, you know, there's some layers of meta going on with that play. So it's kind of, you, we become aware as an audience that these are actually modern actors in those roles. And so, you know, that in and of itself kind of allows for um, not casting what one would from our Western perspective think of as a traditional, you know, medieval European theater troupe, AKA all white. Um, you know, we could have used that alone as a justification, but the conversations that we had with Terry about the black presence in medieval Europe and what would have been a, uh, a real world path for that human to be in that place at that time were some of the best conversations I've ever had in a rehearsal room and talking about um, him being there as a black man, as that character at that time. Um, and those are conversations that I, I'm not sure our field was really delving into a decade, certainly not two decades ago in a context like this. So you're giving me goosebumps remembering that because I came in, you know, eager beaver, done all my research, done all my homework, sent out all this stuff thinking I understood the play, knowing we had a black actor in that role. And I had given zero, zero thought to what it meant for a black actor. I was thinking to use the terminology we've been using in this call is at, in a colorblind casting kind of way, not on purpose, but that's what I was doing. And Terry's like, well, actually there were all these, you know, black people in Europe during that time. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That was my job to know that. I didn't know that. I went and did all this incredible, very exciting research, ended up having a wonderful back and forth that went on over for over a week, couple of weeks with Terry, became closer to him. It allowed trust between the two of us to develop that would not have otherwise developed. That's exactly the kind of thing that can happen. And it, it was a, one of the most moving experiences for me because it was a chance for me to say, you know what? I screwed up. I didn't know the things I should have known, number one. So that's the first part. And the second part, and this is what's equally exciting. Wow, this, because I've been able to sort of say that to myself and then eventually to him, I have all this stuff I can learn and it'll make the play better. It'll make the relationships in the room stronger. It was awesome. And those are the kinds of conversations we can and should be happening, uh, having right, right, right now in exactly the way, Jen, that you described. Sorry to go on about that, but that was a great moment for me, for me too. Yeah. yeah. I think that's exactly what we're being asked to do, asked to consider in this article. Yeah. And to just be even more purposefully expansive in how we think about our, our work and both in the stories we choose to tell, how we choose to tell them, who we hire to help us tell them, um, and to and to not just think about, um, you know, are we, uh, you know, are we are we getting rid of that idea that's so prevalent in you know contemporary theater of defaulting to white, right? If it if this if the playwright hasn't written this character is black in the character description, do we just assume that they are white? And that is something that we in the field have really been making real efforts to get rid of. That, that is, that is a, a destructive and harmful um, place to, to, to be. And I think that, 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 that there's been real strides there. And 
to, to not only take that further, but to bring in all of these other intersectional aspects as we think about every character. You know, what age, does this character need to be a specific age or can we be more expansive? Do they need to be a specific gender identity or can we be more expansive in who we consider? Um, body body type. Type. <laughs> to, um, does this need to be the sort of skinny person we see on TV all the time or can we be more expansive? Um, and I think that uh, playwrights are getting better and better as well, contemporary playwrights at um, pushing us to, as a field, to think more expansively, um, you know, at, at the risk of yet again, bringing up Lauren Gunderson <laughs> uh, on this podcast, but, you know, she's been excellent in her directives to playwright, uh, to, to directors um, in her playwright's notes at the beginning of a play about considering different ways of, of casting. Um, so I, so yeah, it's, it's exciting and it's, it's taking a direction we've been trying to move in and pushing us farther, giving us better language, giving us more things to think about. And that, that always feels like a gift. There was, a, um, you know, speaking of, of, of St. Lauren, um, <laughs> there was a, a workshop that just got done in Montana that I just watched the other day of her upcoming musical that she's working on um, with Ariane Sar, uh, Jeanette, about Jeanette Rankin. Mm -hmm. And they have a section in there. And this is if Lauren listens to this, this is my plea that this stays in there because it was a lab. I mean, they're just trying mm -hmm. stuff out. They have one section in there where. Um, you know, in, in this play that's about a white woman from Montana in 1916, they're very conscious of who's playing those roles. Um, you had a cast of color up there on stage and where they stop each of them, the actors in this workshop and talk about their own identity and who they are and how that influences what they're feeling as they're on stage um, and, and why it was important for them, given their own particular stories. You know, one of the uh, actors, South Asian, one of the actors, uh, uh, Mexican, um, and how that influenced their feeling about the right to vote. It was so moving and so powerful. And in the old traditional way of thinking about a story it had zero to do with Jeanette Rankin and had everything to do with Jeanette Rankin. It was really, really cool. And it's the kind of thing that 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 we can do, you know, real quickly. I want to talk about body shaming really quickly because, you know, and this is, you know, uh, I mean, I, it's not just Amy Schumer that's making us aware of how ridiculous um, our thinking is on this issue. There was a survey that was done by the Women's Committee of British Equity uh, just a couple of years ago, 2019. And the numbers shocked me. More than two thirds of the respondents to this survey and of those two thirds, like something like four fifths of them were women, talked about they had had specific experiences where a director or um, a casting uh, director or a director had pressured them to change the way in which they their their body was was shaped. I'm not just talking about hair, um, you know, although that was part of it too, but specifically on that issue. And look, there's some roles. I don't want a thin Falstaff ever. I don't want a thin actor. You couldn't have a thin actor in Sam Hunter's The Whale. Um, but most parts, we could be thinking about this so much more expansively um, that, that, than we are. And it's just criminal. You know, we talk a lot about race and gender. We don't talk enough about body shaming and Jen, you brought it up. We don't talk enough about age, um, which is ridiculous. I mean, some of the best Shakespearean hamlets we've ever had have not only been women, but have been women who are older 
than what you're so quote unquote supposed to be to play that role. Why? Because they were able in their imagination to take us to a place where their understanding of that role made sense in terms of who that character is. Right. Well, and then that's a, that's a beautiful example of what we do have to lose if we get too rigid about who can play what roles. Um, that's, that's a beautiful example of that. But yeah, I mean, human beings come in every shape and size actors on stage. It's a, it seems to be a much, much, much narrower um, subset there. And, uh, and that really needs attention. And, and, you know, I'm sometimes surprised at um, how, how little focus is given. Uh, And I'm not just talking about, you know, the people doing, doing the hiring, but also from audiences and from critics to, um, to point out our need to, to do better in that, in that realm. I think critics are great. I don't think they know how to talk about it, honestly. Um, and I mean, I, and I will acknowledge during my years as a critic, there were times when I didn't know how to have that conversation without a fear of being misunderstood. So that for example, and I can think of as, I'll give you a specific example, Bill Brown used um, in his production of Streetcar Named Desire, Eunice, the upstairs landlord owner of the place the Kowalskis lived in was black, which was a brilliant, brilliant move. Because what it did when Blanche walked in and saw that, she wasn't just sort of shocked at the quarter where her sister lived. She was shocked that her sister's landlord was black. And it registered for the audience that Blanche is not only this you know, poor victim of Stanley, she's also a racist from an old fashioned Southern tradition. And Stanley's not. Stanley's a representative, and Bill was conscious about this in his director's notes, of the New South. And so it it complicates and scrambles your view of those two characters. There was no way in terms of space and also just in terms of how to do it that I knew how to have a decent conversation about that casting choice in what I wrote. But damn, I mean, to not talk about it means you're not really talking about something integral to the way that production worked. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I don't want to cut this conversation off because I feel like we could go and go. But, you know, overall, I, I think of an article like this, um, I put it in the context of a lot of the other um, sort of gifts to the field that I think we've been receiving, especially over this past year. You know, you think about the work of the artists behind We See White American Theater. You think there's just been there's been a lot of writing and a lot of thinking and a lot of calls to us to be better, to be smarter, to be more thoughtful as a field. And, you know, really taking each of these offerings um, as as the the gifts that they are. It's a lot of um, effort being uh, put into it uh, to to help all of us. Um, And and it's it's exciting and I'm grateful for it. And uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where we go in the coming weeks and months and years as a field as a result. any final thoughts, Julie or Mike? Uh, we, we are we are being challenged to think differently, and you are absolutely right, Jen. Be better, and that that has that's been the challenge through this entire um, difficult pandemic year, and um, it's one of the silver linings that we have had the time and the sort of the the capacity to really think about how we are being challenged and how to make it better. 
Yeah, I, I, amen to that. And and I guess my, my closing thought would be something, Jen, you referenced, and it's it's sort of not exactly what we're talking about, but it's related, and it's the stories we choose to tell. And this article was very good at not just talking about who was on stage, but the kinds of texts that we were going to do. And it's a point where I think the two people in the conversation in the article were not on the same page, which was productive in terms of thinking about what stories we're going to tell. You know, And this goes to the whole change from color conscious casting, actually from colorblind to color conscious and out to identity casting, is the sense that August Wilson talked about a full 25 years ago now, which is there's a psychic trauma that gets paid by a black actor when you're requiring them to be in white story after white story and white story. And yes, we can change the nature and shape of those stories through a different kind of casting. But we also need to be dealing with a world where 90% of the plays by the six equity companies in Milwaukee over the last 20 years are by white playwrights, where 80% of the plays that are being done in New York are still by white playwrights. If we tell more stories by other people besides white playwrights, then some of these problems are going to problems is the wrong word. Some of the opportunities we're talking about are going to be even greater because you're going to be telling stories that more naturally allow for people whose voices have not been heard to be heard. And the plays are there. There are so many great plays right now by playwrights of color. Damn it. Let's do them. I'm going to end there because I am fired up and ready to go now, Mike Fisher. So uh, thank you. And we will say that that is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jenna Poff-Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced, as always, by Scott Hayden. And you can follow us or share your thoughts on Facebook or Twitter at Theater Forward. Theater is always spelled with an E-R. And if you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in and be sure to leave a review. We are so grateful to have you listening and we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.